0: If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to open it up to Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 to 23 for a sermon I've entitled, The Gospel, Breaking Down Barriers. That's Acts 10, 1 to 23. Why don't you follow along as I read? It says, Now, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. He it was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw... In a vision, an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Now when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there was in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time saying, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions uh, for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up and go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent him myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason you have come to me? They said, Cornelius, the centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well-spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. You know, when you watch major league sports, you'll notice that two of them are dominated by African-American players. I mean, despite being only 14% of the U.S. population, blacks make up 50% of NFL players. And they're even more dominant in basketball. In the NBA, 73% are black, only 17% are white, 3% Latino, and less than 1% are Asian. The NHL, on the other hand, has only 26 black players total. Some 97% of NHL players are white. Well, in Major League Baseball, the percentage of black players has dropped from a high of 19% in 1981 to 6% this year. But you know, up until 1947, there were no black players in the Major League Baseball. That's because they were barred from playing. Instead, they played in what was called the Negro League. The first player to jump from that league to the majors was Jackie Robinson. Jack Roosevelt Robinson was born in 1919, the youngest of five children into a home of sharecroppers from Cairo, Georgia. After his dad abandoned the family, his mom moved the kids to Pasadena, California. And though they lived in a fairly affluent community, Jackie's family was poor. His mom worked various odd jobs to keep the family afloat. Now all of the Robinson boys were athletic. Jackie's older brother Mac won the silver medal in 1936 Olympics, Olympics, only taking second to Jesse Owens. Now Jackie excelled in sports himself in high school: basketball, track, football. Interestingly, baseball was the one he was least skilled in. But in college, he lettered in four sports, including baseball. Well, after he had played in semi, after he graduated, he played in a semi-pro league in California until he was drafted into the army. And there he uh, applied for Officer Candidate School, and surprisingly he got in because few blacks at the time did. Now he got in trouble once when he was in the army. Going home from a hospital, he boarded a military bus, and the bus driver told him that he had to go sit in the back. even though that wasn't army policy. Well, Robinson refused, and the bus driver backed down from his demand, but later he called the military police and they took Jackie into custody. He was recommended for a court-martial, but his commanding officer wouldn't go along with it, so Robinson was transferred to another unit whose commander agreed to charge Jackie with multiple offenses, including public drunkenness, even though Robinson didn't actually drink. Well, eventually he was acquitted by an all-white military tribunal. Well, in 1945, after he got out of the military, Robinson joined the Negro League and played there for one year, but the next year, when the major league season started, he tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers, And the general manager of the time was a man named Branch Rickey. Now, Rickey interviewed Robinson for three hours. What he wanted to know was that if Jackie would be able to handle all the racial animosity that he would certainly face. Robinson asked the GM, he said, are you looking for a Negro who's afraid to fight back? And Rickey replied and said, no, I need a Negro player who has guts enough not to fight back. So Robinson certainly faced opposition and criticism and bigotry. I mean, he was first assigned to the Dodgers farm team in Florida, where they had state-sponsored segregation. And when he was finally called up to the majors, some of the Dodger players suggested that they would sit out rather than play with a black man on the team. And the St. Louis Cardinal players threatened to go on strike, but the baseball commissioner, Happy Chandler, promised to suspend any player who did so. So Robinson endured name-calling and jeering from the fans, and when the team traveled, he had to stay in a separate hotel. But there were some teammates who not only stood up for Jackie, but really encouraged him along the way. Meeting the challenge, Robinson did not lash out at his critics. He just kept playing great baseball. Jackie Robinson was not only the first black man to play in the Major League since 1884, but he was also the first to play on a team that won the World Series. Not only black athletes, but all Americans owe him a debt of gratitude, this man who broke the color barrier in professional sports in America. You know, sometimes the barriers that stand in our way are physical. They're fences, razor wire, chains. But other times those barriers are historical, cultural, and psychological. They result from misunderstandings, from wrong thinking, and even bad theology, and sometimes just simple prejudice. Well, if the fences between blacks and whites in baseball in the 40s was high, the fence between Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament times was even higher. Now, God had always intended to save not only Jews, but Gentiles, because Abraham was told that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But for that to happen, fences would have to be torn down, barriers removed, and attitudes changed so Jews and Gentiles could be united in the church, the body of Christ. Well, here we have a story where God begins to tear down that Jew-Gentile divide, and he does so in a dramatic way by giving two visions, one to a Jew named Peter and another to a Gentile named Cornelius. Well, to see why this was such a monumental event at the time and how it addresses our attitudes towards others in the church, we want to consider this passage this morning. So why don't we pray and get into the text? Our Father God, you do pray for grace and mercy. Help, me, help us as we look at this to understand and apply it to our hearts so that we might be pleasing to you through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. You know, even today there are closed, uh, close-knit religious groups who tend to be suspicious of the outside world. I mean, think about the Amish that we have around here. They refer to everybody who is an outsider as the English because we speak the English language. They interact with outsiders when it comes to business, and they might even ask their non-Amish neighbor for a ride in their vehicle. But they like to keep to themselves, and they're certainly discouraged from making friends with outsiders. The Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in New York, they're the ones where the men wear the big round fur hats and the women walk around in long, dark dresses with head coverings under which they wear wigs. You know, it's considered immodest for a woman to show her hair, but strangely enough, that woman will wear a $1,500 wig made from another woman's hair. I guess you can show another woman's hair on your head, but not your own. Well, the older ultra-Orthodox Jews are very suspicious of the outside world, and they seek to isolate themselves and the kids from it as much as possible. I mean, they don't want their children contaminated by Gentile culture. Well, contamination is what the Jews in the New Testament were concerned about as well when they interacted with Gentiles. I mean, Gentiles were pork-eating, idol-worshipping, sexually immoral people lost in darkness of sin and ignorant of the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so suspicion and contempt was the attitude that many had when it came to the Goyim, that is, the Gentiles. And as I said, this was such a uh, momentous event that was going to take place, that God prepared both Cornelius and Peter by giving them visions. So the first part of the sermon, we can label this, Cornelius, your prayers have been answered. And this is verses one to eight. Now we're introduced to this man in verses one to two, where we read this. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, the centurion of what's called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Caesarea is a harbor city in the northwest coast of Israel. It was named in honor of Caesar Augustus by Herod, who built it, who dug out a harbor, constructed magnificent theaters, a palace, and an aqueduct. It served as the residence for the Roman governor in Israel. Jews didn't like the city or the people who lived in it because most of them were Gentiles. One of those Gentiles living in the city was Cornelius, who served in the Roman army, specifically in what's called the Italian Cohort. Now, as a centurion, he would have been in command of a hundred men. He'd be like a platoon commander in the United States Army, which is usually a junior officer, a first or second lieutenant. But by personality and temperament, they were more like a master sergeant. They're considered the backbone of the Roman army. Now, When it came to religion, though, most Roman soldiers embraced the philosophy of stoicism. And the need for self-discipline, regulation of emotions, and the ability to endure hardships were considered good qualities for a soldier, and those were the values that Stoicism embraced. So it's a little surprising here to read that Cornelius was a devout man, one who feared God, along with his whole household. Now the Greek word for devout here is eusebius, which means reverent, pious, devout, religious. It speaks both a attitude and practice. Also told that he feared God. In the synagogue, most of the people attending were obviously Jewish, but there were some Gentiles who had made full conversions to Judaism so that they underwent circumcision and kept the dietary laws. But there were also those, uh, by the way, they were were called proselytes. But there were also those who didn't go that far, but still attended the synagogue services, acknowledged that the God of Israel was the true God, and these people were called God-fearers. And evidently, that's what Cornelius was. He feared God. And it says with all of his household. You see, for him, religion wasn't just a personal affair, it was a family affair. You know, I find it strange when I come across people who say, well, you know, I don't want to push religion on my kids. I want them to choose for themselves what to believe. I mean, do they do the same thing when it comes to what their kids eat? You know, I don't want to make my kids eat vegetables. I don't want to push my eating preferences on them. I let them choose for themselves. So if they want to eat chocolate cake for breakfast, Twinkies for lunch, and gummy bears for dinner, I'm going to respect their choices. As stupid as that sounds, there's parents who do essentially the same thing when it comes to their kids' beliefs. Many parents are not really adults. they are more children just in full-grown bodies. Hey, dads, and particularly moms, you're not called to be pals to your children, but parents. If you're convinced that what you believe is ultimately true, why wouldn't you seek to instill that truth into your kids? Be sure of this. If you don't teach your kids the truth, there's going to be other people teaching them lies. Well, for Cornelius, his fear and reverence of God, the God of Israel, caused him to give many alms, it says, to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. You know, encouraging people to pray, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Well, Cornelius had been knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door and God was ready to open it up and answer his prayers in a dramatic way. Look what it says in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he was clearly... He clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter, staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Now in some churches, they burn incense as part of the service. Well, Cornelius' prayers and charity had wafted up to heaven and were a sweet smell to the Lord. Okay, here's the million-dollar question, though. Was Cornelius already saved at this point in his life? You know, the commentators argue over this. I mean, look at how he's described here. He's, he's devout, meaning reverent, serious about his religion. You know, I bet if he were to come into a modern megachurch with its rock bands, light shows, fog machines, listening to a man standing up front wearing a Hawaiian shirt, shorts, flip-flops, telling a bunch of personal stories else, he would have turned around and walked out. I mean, he was a thoughtful man who wanted to wrestle with the weighty issues of life and faith. He wasn't an intellectual featherweight looking to yuck it up at a worship service while he drank his double mocha latte espresso. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And we're told here that he feared God, and he prayed continually. Now, if you had a person in your church for whom all these descriptions were true, wouldn't you conclude that this person was certainly or most likely born again? But turn over in your Bible to Acts chapter 11, verses 13 to 14. Now we're jumping ahead in the story, but we need to clear this issue up before we go any farther. Uh, this is uh, later on after the encounter with Cornelius where Peter's back in Jerusalem defending himself against the charge that he had done something wrong by eating at the house of a Gentile. Peter tells the others there that when he met Cornelius, quote, he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said, send a job and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you, listen to this, by which you will be saved, you and your household. Now, if the angel told Cornelius that he should send for Peter so that he might speak words, meaning the gospel, to you by which you will, future tense, be saved, you and your household, doesn't that mean that at this point, the angel is speaking to him that Cornelius was not yet saved? I mean, isn't the whole reason that God gave Cornelius the vision was so that he could hear the gospel and be born again, believe, and be saved? You're saying, but pastor, I, th- I thought the Bible teaches that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who seeks after God. All are turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Now that's all true. No one seeks God unless and until God first moves in their heart to begin to seek him. You see, in our fallen nature, we remain unconverted and unconcerned. But if the Spirit of God starts to stir in our mind and our heart so that we become dissatisfied with life, longing for something more, we might start moving our way towards him. Well, theologians sometimes speak of provenient grace. John Wesley believed that as a result of Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden, mankind became enslaved to sin, but God, through Christ, restored to every person the ability to turn to God. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches that we're dead in our sins, enslaved to them. We're naturally blind to the truth and harden our hearts against God. Well, the Reformed and what I would argue is the biblical understanding of provenient grace, which Augustine taught, was that God will often extend certain amount of grace to a person he's calling, even before he's converted that person, to prepare them for the day that they are. I want you to think about your own experience as a Christian. I mean, can't you look back in your own life and see times when God was working in you and in your life to bring, him to bring you to the point where you finally believed in Christ? By the way, this should be an encouragement to those of you in our church who are not yet converted and you know it. I mean, isn't the fact that you're still here listening to the word of God, a hopeful sign that he may yet save you. And Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen says this, you will seek me and you will find me when you search with me, or search for me with all your heart. Keep seeking, keep searching, keep listening to the word of God. And then when he lets you find him, you can sing the words of the hymn that say, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. You see, the good shepherd goes looking for his lost sheep. And if the sheep starts to run towards the shepherd, it's only because he hears the shepherd's voice calling him. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Well, Cornelius was one of those sheep from the other fold, that is, the Gentiles. God had already been working in his heart through provenient grace, and now the time had come for this sheep to hear his shepherd's voice and be joined to Jesus' flock. Well, this is the time that the gospel was going to break down the Jew-Gentile barrier. God prepared the Gentile Cornelius through a vision. He's going to prepare the Jew, Peter, also through a vision. You know, I've heard a lot of stories And I would guess you have too where Muslims have dreams where an angel or even Jesus appears to them in the dream and as a result they go to search out a Christian or a church and then hear the gospel and be saved. But I've never heard a story where the person actually got saved simply by the dream. That only comes through the proclamation of the gospel and that requires someone to give it. Cornelius needed someone to tell him the story of Jesus. And that brings us to our second vision given in the story. You can label the next section Peter, three sheets in the wind. This is 9 to 23. Now, three sheets in the wind. Have you ever heard that phrase? Do you know what it means and where it comes from? Actually, it comes from the days of sailing ships. Uh, to say that a person has three sheets in the wind means that they're sloppy drunk. Well, the sheet refers to the rope or the chain that attaches to the sail on a ship. And if all three of them got loose, the sails would wobble and allow the ship to stagger off course. And that's where they get the idea of a drunken soldier. Well, i 'm using the phrase tongue in cheek obviously and applying it to Peter because he wasn 't drunk when he received this vision, but he did it did involve something that looked like a sheet which we saw which he saw three times in that vision. here it says on the next day, as they were on the way and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and he was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground. And there was all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. You know, I have uh, kids and grandchildren and siblings who get really tense and really edgy if they don't eat on time. I think it has to do with their blood sugar levels. You know, my dad was the same way. I remember him always being angry when he came home from work. He didn't want to be in the front yard when he did because he'd kick the toys and talk about how he didn't do enough to help around there. Uh, But you know, it's funny. I don't remember him ever being angry after dinner. I think that's why my mom always had supper uh, ready for him right when he got home. Well, Peter fell into a trance when uh, his hunger pains came upon him and he saw a sheet filled with all kinds of animals Not just sheep and goats, which Jews could eat, but also animals like lizards and buzzards and pigs and lobsters, things forbidden to Jews to eat according to their law. You know, one guy I know said that as a kid, he ate a lot of raccoons. Yuck. He didn't like it. Another guy I know said that when he was a kid, his uncle took him hunting and he shot a skunk and scun it and then cooked it over a fire and made him eat it. I think he said he ended up throwing up as a result. I have a Korean friend who said that uh, he ate dogs when he was growing up. I've eaten alligator, that's pretty good. Camel, that's gross. Peter was repelled by the thought of eating some of these things. And uh, so it says in verse 14, But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. So God had given Jews certain dietary laws that were required to keep. Uh, This wasn't for health reasons, but to set them off from the culture around them. I mean, Jews don't eat pork. Either do Muslims. I had a guy at the dairy that I worked at. He was from India. At the company picnic, we had a barbecue with brats and burgers. He and his family only had cheese in their buns. Hindus don't eat meat. Well, there are people who are vegans. They don't eat meat or any animal products. They believe that it's immoral to use animal products. Well, all these people would see themselves as being defiled if they ate something that they considered unholy and unclean. But you know, Jesus had actually dealt with this issue of foods being clean and unclean already. In Mark chapter 7, 14 to 23, he said this, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside of a man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now when they left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying to him, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, theft, murder, adultery, deeds of covetousness and wickedness, as well as all deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evils proceed from within and defile a man. Well, in verse 15, we read this. Again, a voice came to him, meaning Peter, a second time saying, what God has cleansed, no longer consider holy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up in the sky. Now, what was Peter supposed to make of this vision? Okay, he might've been given a reminder that the Old Testament laws, uh, the food laws were passe in the new covenant. I mean, a person is neither better or worse off for eating pork. I mean, you get no extra credit if you're a vegetarian. But a Jew who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah was not required to eat a ham sandwich as a result. So why this dramatic vision about clean and unclean animals where God commanded him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I mean, this was a head scratcher for him. But then we read this. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. For I myself have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a righteous man, God-fearing and well-spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear your message. Now three times a sheet was lowered down with unclean animals on it. A little later, three men, Gentile men, show up at the door asking Peter to come with them to Cornelius' house. Ah, I get it, Peter's thinking. This isn't about my attitude towards food, which I consider unclean, lizards and buzzards and pigs. It's about people that I consider unclean, like these three Gentiles standing before me asking me to go to a Roman centurion's house. Now you see how God is beginning to break down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles? As a Jew, Peter had suspicion about and probably some contempt for pagan Gentiles, but he needed to understand and know that the church needs to understand and it has to learn that any person, Jew or Gentile, who comes to God through faith in Christ is acceptable to God and should be accepted by the other followers of Jesus. Now, the evidence that Peter's prejudice were giving way is seen in the next words. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. I am sure that is the first time Peter ever welcomed a Gentile to spend a night with him. I read somewhere that in many places in the South, during the Jim Crow era, if you ever had a black person come to your house when you were white, or if you were white, uh, whether it was a coworker or even a friend, uh, you would always have them come through the back door. You wouldn't welcome them at the front door. Well, what the early Jewish followers of Jesus needed to understand is that anyone and everyone who enters into God's household comes the same way, through the front door of faith in his son Jesus Christ. There's no servant's entrance. There's no back door. There's no side door. There's no trap door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. You see, in the Jim Crow South, they had separate but equal. In the church, because we're all sinners saved by grace, we're all equal, and therefore there's no place for separate. As it says in Ephesians 4, 4-6, there's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, how does this apply to us today? I mean, we're all Gentiles. and None of us struggle with the idea that Gentiles should be allowed in the church. I mean, the majority of the church is Gentiles. And I don't think you could hardly find any churches today where they would say that black people shouldn't be allowed into the church or some other race. But you know, that doesn't mean that we don't still harbor prejudices against people from certain backgrounds or life experiences. Let me put it this way. Who or what type of person would make you uncomfortable if they came through the doors of your church? Or what type of people would you be reluctant to try to reach out to with the gospel? You see, there are barriers that we have to get beyond to reach people. And sometimes... Our own attitudes are the greatest barriers. Let us remove them so that the gospel can go forward. May God give us the grace to love all people so that we can proclaim to all people their need for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy for those who are hearing the word. Lord, uh, we still have prejudices that we all have. It may not be based on skin color, it may be economic background or just the way people look. But all people need Jesus and we don't want to be a barrier to them coming to Christ. I thank you that you broke down this barrier on that day. It's going to take a while for the church to work this through in its mind and to come to full grips with it. But you were doing an amazing thing on that day and we thank you for it because all of us who are Gentiles have benefited from it. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.